Welcome back or welcome to the Defining Endurance Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Andrew Simmons from Lifelong Endurance. Today, we're going to talk about resilience. If you have raced in the last two years, you've definitely had to be a little resilient. But one of the things that really made the last two years unique when it came to racing specifically were wave starts. I think they were one of the necessary but frustrating parts of racing. We'd go out and you might win or think that you've maybe won your age group and only to come back and realize that you've placed third or fourth. This is a really frustrating premise because you feel like you've accomplished something only to have that thing taken from you. My guest today, she completed the Nolan's 14 FKT. Another athlete came, broke her record, and came back. Now I'm all for friendly competition, and I think one of the things that makes Sabrina an amazing athlete is not the fact that she completed Nolan's 14. That's a climbing, hiking, running route uh, through the Sawatch Range here in Colorado. It's 14, 14,000 foot peaks over roughly 100 miles. Now, the elevation gain alone is 40,000 feet, and uh, some would say that that's a pretty big weekend. Um, But for her, this was more than just a prized goal. This is something that she took very personally, something that was important to her. And I think the story here and the thing that really I walked away with when, when talking with Sabrina was that when it becomes personal, you can dig even deeper than you thought possible. She went and completed and put out what she thought was her best effort. Another athlete comes and raises the bar. So what does she do? She goes back out and raises the bar. A phenomenal story. Sabrina's a great guest. I'm so excited for you guys to listen to this. So buckle up and let's get into today's episode. guys welcome back or welcome to the defining endurance podcast i'm your host coach andrew simmons from lifelong endurance my guest today sabrina stanley uh she's an adidas Terex athlete she is the two-time winner of the hard rock 100 she's also won the hurt 100 but i think she's best known for tackling the nolan's 14 uh she currently owns the female supported record at two days zero hours and 49 minutes Sabrina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really, really excited to talk with you. Um, you know, we, we, we talked just before this kind of uh, talking about getting to a little bit of, of, of your history. Um, I think one of the things that I love is understanding, like, where did people fall in love with the sport? And especially this side of the sport, because FKTs, I think, are, are a more recent addition to the um, <laughs> the colorful picture that is ultra running. Um, but I wanted to kind of take a step all the way back. Um, you kind of list in your bio and your website that you've always been a competitive person was running always kind of something you did growing up. Uh, not really. I was in team sports my entire life. So basketball, volleyball, fast pitch, soccer. Um, and then when I was a sophomore in high school, I met this girl from another school who ran seven miles every day to stay in shape. And so that blew my mind because my mom would drag, she had six kids. She would drag us all to the track and she would run a mile and like on a big night, she'd run two and um, like two was really far for me to fathom. And um, so when I found this girl that ran seven, it's like, Oh, I want to try that. And so I started running like it was, I think technically 7.14 and I would run that, um, 
I ran it every day that summer just to see if I could. And it was the exact same path every single day. And I think through that, I fell in love with running a few years later. I had a friend invite me to do a half marathon, which I thought were only for elites. I didn't know just like the average person could sign up for these races. And so I did my first half marathon and, um, just kind of kept going from there and signed up for another one and then jumped to road marathons and then, um, met some people who did trail running and, um, I moved to Colorado and started trail running and, um, signed up for Leadville 100. My name got drawn. And so I decided to run my first hundred. I was 25, I believe I'm 31 now. So that was six years ago. And, um, I dropped at mile 87 because of time and yeah. So that's, that's like a very condensed version of what happened, but, um, yeah. You've had, you've had one hell of an arc in, in five years then. <laughs> yeah, it's been pretty good. <laughs> um, well, when I dropped at mile 87 or was cut off due to time, I, um, like literally that week moved to New York city, um, for eight months and put my name back in for Leadville and, my name, I told myself if my name gets drawn, then that's a sign that I have to go back to Colorado and like do it right. And if my name doesn't get drawn, then I'm supposed to be in New York city and I need to like see this other job through and climb that ladder as high as I can. <laughs> so I just kind of like left it up to fate and my name was drawn again. So I moved back to Colorado and I made, I, you know, I said to myself that like, I I need help doing this. And because I used to read or I do read a bunch of books, but like reading books was the only really, um, I guess, path I was taking to better myself or to learn about the sport. And I started in, in addition to that, reaching out to as many people as I could to help me learn, um, like firsthand. And so, um, I was sending emails and then, you know, just, I don't know, talking to people, quizzing them about their races. I started working at a running store just as much as I could dig into the culture as possible. I did. That's, um, I love that story because, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people would leave the Leadville lottery up to fate other than do I get in this year or do I not? I don't think many people have moved, moved cross country and, uh, quit a job to pursue, um, running. Would you say at that, were you still, was, was the running store really kind of your, your only work other than training? Yeah. I mean, I had a, a pretty good job in New York city and as far as like pay wise. And so when my name got drawn from Leadville, I put in my two weeks, um, that spring and decided to move back. And I went from like making a decent living to working at like minimum wage at a running store. So I had fortunately saved up quite a bit, a bit of money, but, um, I, I knew, um, the lady that owned the running store and she had just, uh, transferred ownership to my now really good friend, Dean Eastham. And so, uh, she put me on the phone with him and he hired me and said, as soon as I moved back to Colorado, I had a job at the store. And so that was kind of like my in there. And I just tried to, you know, budget my money as well as I could to make it last and was hoping to find a better paying job in time. And, um, I ended actually ended up leaving uh, the running store and, and moving to Steamboat Springs. And so like life just happened, but um, yeah, that was like my main and my only income. And it was just like trying to figure out how to budget around that and like focus on my running otherwise. I'm curious to talk a little bit about lessons learned. Uh, when you look back at your second attempt at Leadville, 
Um, you know, if you looked back now, what would you have, what did your training, you know, really comprise of, um, maybe, maybe whether it was, you know, it did a goofy number of long runs or some things like that. What were some lessons that you look back and say, maybe, you know, uh, I, this, this, uh, <laughs> this may not have, have been my best choice trying to get to the finish line of that second, um, Leadville 100. Was there anything that kind of stands out to you as far as what your training looked like or what you remember it being like? Yeah. I'm, I would say the biggest difference is volume. Um, my first time I attempted Leadville, I didn't, I had no idea what I was doing and I was working a ton and, and just skipping runs, cutting them short, not going as hard as I should have been. Um, and so the volume was much more consistent my second go around and much higher. Also my nutrition was dialed in. My pacing was dialed in. Um, I would say like I rebuilt everything from scratch, like beyond just like the chip on my shoulder of not finishing the first time I totally had to throw everything that I thought I knew about running a hundred miles off the table and uh, I met Avery Collins. And so I just picked his brain and I, anytime he'd ask me to go on a training run, even if I thought I had enough miles for that day or that week or that month or whatever it was, I made myself go run with him. And I know he was much, much faster than me, but I said, like, I'm going to get better by running with him. And no matter how uncomfortable it makes me saying like, you know, I'm this slow compared to you, like just put yourself in that uncomfortable zone. And just, if he invites you go. And so I would run with him as much as I possibly could and just absorbed as much knowledge from him. And then also I would study like his steps as he was going, um, to see how he ran downhill, how he climbed, um, any incline. And so I really just tried to become a student of the sport as much as possible. And I would say that's the number one change from, you know, round one to round two was, um, a lot of firsthand knowledge from other people who had gone through it. And, um, like I had all the book knowledge, I feel like, but it just helped talking to someone who'd actually been through it. Yeah. It's, it's different when you have to put it into practice. You know, I think anybody that's, that's gone through, uh, any formal education, you know, you can read something and, you know, do the homework as much as, as you want and you can write out as many training plans as you'd like, but until they're pressure tested or, you know, actually put, put to work, you know, what, what, what you think is going to work on paper, uh, ra- rarely plays out exactly, um, as it would either on race day or, or in training. Um, and so I, I think, you know, hearing you say that, I think, okay, so she, she DNF'd her first Leadville comes back. And how did you finish? How did you finish at your second attempt? I was fourth. Um, I honestly can't remember my time. I want to say it was 22, 27. Um, I think that's right or close enough, but, um, Mm. yeah, my goal was to come in top 10. (laughs) And so I was really, really happy with fourth. Like that was just, it blew my mind that, um, in one year that I could come that far. And it really was just with, um, a little bit more focus, I would say than the first time. So since and, and back oh. to what you're sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, and with, with books, kind of what you were saying as well as you can't learn everything from just a book, like you have to put into practice. And a lot of those books have such great knowledge, but at the same time, they're for a general audience. And so, you know, like that formula is not going to work for every single person. It'll work for, let's say 80%, but 
some people's bodies can handle more mileage and run better on more mileage and some need less and some need different nutrition. And so just learning for yourself and, and time on the trail really is, I think the king of, of ultras. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, for anybody that's not a Colorado, you know, native that's listening, I'm sure you guys have all heard across, of, of the race across the sky with the Leadville 100. Um, but if you haven't, you know, this is a race that, you know, the average elevation is 10,000 feet above sea level. Um, you know, you're, you're hitting 13, two, I think, uh, at the highest point, uh, if I remember correctly in my stats on this race, um, so it's definitely a high altitude. Um, it's, it's a race that's known for having some, um, significant climbs by, by no means is it, um, you know, the, the greatest, uh, mountain course out there. We'll get there. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a tough, tough course. And so, uh, to make, to make as, as much of a jump as you did in a year, I think really showed, you know, both your, your potential as an athlete, um, but also the, you know, being consistent to something. I think, um, you as a coach and me as a coach, uh, the thing that we, we both seem to preach pretty consistently here is consistency. Um, and, and that really made, um, I think a, a big, big difference for you, both with training with Avery, um, but also just dedicating more time to that. Now in, in that buildup and we can, we can move on from Leadville after this is, um, you know, when you say your nutrition and things like that, what, what was the biggest change? Was it just more calories? Was it better timing? Was it different kinds of calories? What made the big difference for you in that second Leadville? Yeah, I would say it was different kinds of calories and consistency again of, of calories. Um, my first one or my first Leadville, I think I set a half marathon PR, the first half marathon of the race. Um, I was just going for it right out of the gate. I honestly don't remember how often I was eating or how much I do know that like 20 miles in, I had a ton of like the Justin's peanut butter packets and I had had two and was over them like before the race had really even started. Um, and I, I think I had like peanut butter and then one other option for my food, but it was really simple. And then my second year, um, I had a whole new strategy in terms of pacing and the nutrition. So my first, um, my first 25 miles, I could run whatever pace I wanted to and felt comfortable with. And then the middle 50 miles, I ran at roughly 80% effort, um, like a tempo speed, I would say for 30 minutes. And then I would force myself to walk for five. And I did that for 50 miles and it didn't matter if I was going uphill or downhill or flat or how runnable it was. I just made myself walk those five minutes and then how far could I run in 30? And during those five minutes, I would eat every single time. And so just having that like metronome of 30 minutes, five minutes, eat 30 minutes, five minutes, eat. And I did that those 50 miles. And then the last 25, I was allowed to run as hard as I could. Um, and so I followed that to the second and did not falter at all. And so I think just those consistent, the consistency of those calories, um, was really, you know, that, that made a huge difference. Absolutely. You know, there was, there was no, um, there was no way really to get behind. Um, and I think setting up those structures are really important, especially the longer we go, you know, having coached a number of athletes that race, you know, multi-day stage races or 200 milers, like, consistency of calories is so important. Um, because 
as we go through the process of 24 hours, right, we're breaking up our circadian rhythm. Um, and we have these very normal times our body is used to eating. Um, and when we start to break that up, we can really see, you know, stomach issues start to happen or, you know, th things, things like that can start to come up. And I, I really love this take. I think it's the first time on this podcast where we've had this, this direct of a, Hey, 30 minutes, five minutes. And I, I think this is, this is, this is, uh, definitely some, some gold nuggets here. Um, I, I wanted to move kind of from, from Leadville, you know, was there like you finishing fourth, was that kind of your big opening moment, uh, in racing where you started to get some attention or was there, was there a defining moment for you specifically where you went from being girl that finished fourth to now I'm, you know, now I've become pro or, or is there kind of an arc and a time frame there? I don't think it ever really happened the way I thought it would. I'm excited. I was fourth at Leadville and I don't, I, I feel didn't get any recognition for that. And I don't know if I really deserve to either. I mean, there's so many other races and amazing women out there also. Um, and then I won a golden ticket, uh, for Western States and, um, that happened. So Leadville was August that next February, I won my golden ticket and I took second. So I still hadn't really won like a big competitive race. And then I was podium at Western at my second hundred mile finish. Um, I was third and I thought like that would be the defining moment. Um, and it wasn't in my mind, at least I still didn't feel, um, I don't know, acknowledged, I guess. And then, um, I signed with ultra and still, I don't know. I just never really felt like anything clicked, um, until I would say I signed with Adidas. And so it wasn't even a race for me where it like clicked, but, um, I would say it was the acknowledgement of a big brand, um, with a contract that I felt was worthy of my accomplishments. And then from there, I mean, it was COVID, but, you know, doing back-to-back -back Nolans and then winning hard rock again. Um, so this last, I would say year and a half to two years is really when I feel, um, I've kind of stepped into my own and, and getting the respect that I deserve as mainly a mountain hundred mile runner. Yeah. I, um, I, I would kind of say that that's, that's exactly when I started to kind of take notice of you as an athlete is, um, I think you kind of came on the radar for a lot of people after hard rock. Um, and it seems like you've, you've found your niche at this point, uh, with, <laughs> with hard, you know, mountain races. I, I think, um, I think looking at that, when did you, when did you figure out that that was, that was your, your niche? Um, was it because, Hey, led, I, I did pretty well at Leadville. Was there, you know, a, a race that you did that was flatter and fast and you just didn't feel like you could be competitive. What, what made you kind of shift your, your gears? Cause I mean, you didn't, you know, really grow up per se, right. Going from, uh, living in New York city to then coming out to Colorado, there wasn't a whole lot of like history, I would say, um, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that said, Hey, she's a phenomenal climber. And you really built that. Was that kind of built in that initial, uh, first two it takes at Leadville? Uh, where did you find that, that mountain hunters um, were yours? Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did, I did Leadville, which I would, even though it, um, is in the mountains and you're at high elevation, you're. I think roughly the gain is like 17,000 feet, mm -hmm. which is, 
I would say middle of the row for most hundred milers. Um, and so there's a lot, there's a lot of paved running. There's a lot of dirt road running in Leadville. There's a lot of flat running. Um, and so I, at the time I did view it as like a true mountain hundred. And then I did Sean O'Brien, which I would say is also a very runnable course along with Western States. And again, they're all like, they're definitely not flat. So don't, um, I don't mean to like knock them in any way, but I still want to call them like huge mountain runs. Um, but my, um, boyfriend at the time, he well, fiance now, but my partner, he was really into like mountain running. And I guess I just kind of like followed, um, his passion as well. I mean, I enjoyed it. It was fun. Um, and I went to hurt one year with him, which is definitely a mountain race and, you know, did decently well there. I think I came in third that year and I just seemed to be on this path of hard races and I enjoyed, you know, like the hotter, the better, you know, the more it can rain, the more it can snow, like what, what other circumstances can happen to make the race tougher. And so if you can just pick a course, that's already tough, you know, that, that really appeals to me psychologically. Um, and so, yeah, I think I just enjoyed them. And then through doing them enough, I've kind of learned how to pace myself and, and how to deal with them and go at a certain speed through the mountains. Um, but I do like, I feel that at some point, once I like knock out all these races that I want to, that I can return to some flatter stuff and still have speed for, you know, the hundred K to hundred mile distance. I don't think I'll ever be like a marathon speedster or like a 50 K or even maybe a 50 mile, like flat runner. But I think I, you know, if there's a, just a little bit of climbing, I could still be fast at like a flatter hundred miler. But, um, I think that's a whole different training block. So I've just been, um, kind of like boxed into this now. I don't want to say boxed, but, um, I don't know, like you do hard rock and Nolan's and hard rock again. And so you're just those muscles after time, like why not just do another one? Cause like your comp, your training from the last race complements this one so well. And so I just keep going down this path. Yeah. I mean, right. You've built up a, a, a machine that's, that's, that's good at doing a very specific thing going uphill. Um, I would love to kind of learn from you. Um, and, and then we can kind of hop into uh, a little discussion about a kind of a project that you, you worked on. Uh, I would say maybe a good quarantine project. Um, what, what are some of your favorite workouts or, or things that you, you mentally kind of give yourself as, as structures, uh, for a run, um, for, for building kind of some of that uphill fitness, because I know a lot of people that listen to our podcast, um, they want to get better. They're here to, to get better at climbing. They're here to get better at, at mountain, um, mountain races, or, or even, you know, athletes that live in the South, their version of mountain racing. Um, you know, what are some workouts that you like to use, or maybe some, something that's grown for you uh, as far as a structure? Yeah. I mean, I, I think people get really caught up on, on pacing. I mean, if you look at my, like my data, and then you look at my races, it does not match up. Um, I go really slow in 95% of my training runs. Like my average mile pace is 20 minute miles, depending on how much climbing I'm doing that week. When I was training for Nolan's, my, I had two goals and one goal was not to have a mile slower than an hour. Um, and then my second goal was 
um, to have an average mile pace of under 20 minutes for that day. And those two things rarely ever happened. <laughs> um, and so it's all just perspective and, and just like time on feet. I mean, I think especially in trail running, a lot of the people transfer over from road running where it's all about splits. And then with, with mountain running, you just can't focus on splits that much. It's so much about strength in your legs and just learning, I think mentally shifting, to a point where it's not intolerable to be on the treadmill or on a trail for five hours. And I'm not saying running or sprinting or whatever, but just hiking, like just go out and hike all day. Um, or just put your treadmill at the highest incline you can put it at and just hike for as long as you can. And if you want to run awesome, but if you need to hike, like don't feel guilty about that because it's time that matters. And, um, you're getting stronger at any speed. And then once you taper, the speed will come. And so I, I pushed my body, I would say, so that I'm digging into that. Well, like pretty deep every single week, but it's, they're not fast miles by any means. And I just have faith that when I taper and let my body rest, that the speed will come. And so yeah. A lot of my miles going uphill, you know, depending on my elevation and the incline are 20 minutes or slower and I'm not doing those fast twitch, you know, muscles, but it's just consistency and slow, slowly grinding it out. And then also when you get into an ultra and you're at mile 80, you already know what it's like to crawl up a treadmill for five hours. <laughs> like, so <laughs> it's not that hard to go that pace at mile 80, you know? And so you, you kind of get into that mindset of what's acceptable and what's not, um, and yeah, I think it just makes the back end of an ultra less daunting as well, because you just know what it's like to, to be on a training run and have to walk all 14 miles. Right. You've, you've become calloused to, totally. to the effort. Um, it was, was that difficult initially, you know, to, to see 20, 30, 40 minute miles, um, you know, was, was it hard for you to, adjust to not running and, you know, knowing that there was going to be a payoff at the end of it. I'm, I'm curious to understand, um, kind of how you rationalized that, um, you know, initially, you know, was that, was that a pretty hard transition or was it, Hey, this is all about effort. No, it's still really, really hard. It's still so hard to see the data and be like, ah, I'm going to embarrass myself on race day. Like, I don't know what I'm doing out here, but this is not going to work. Um, yeah, I think it, it also like that confidence just comes from doing it so many times. I mean, I train a lot, um, with Avery and he's a lot faster than I am. And so every, every race I go into, it's kind of like, all right, let's just see what happens. Cause I'm getting my ass kicked on every training run. My right. pace splits are not great. Um, so I'm just going to show up and I'm going to do the best I can. And then it works out and then it works out again and again. And so I think just, you know, having those, uh, the data that shows this has worked in the past for you and just keep doing it and it'll work in the future. Um, so yeah, it, it still is really hard to, to, to look at my splits on some days and like, what were you doing out there? Like, yeah. Like why this, like how did 16 miles take you? eight hours or, or four hours or five hours, you know, whatever it is. Um, and then race day comes and for whatever reason you feel unstoppable. And I think those are the days that like, 
I mean, it doesn't always work out that way. I know there are tough miles, but yeah, I think it's just like talking yourself down from that cliff that like you need to do sprint workouts every single day. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, um, like interval workouts are great once a week, twice a week, but, um, I, I never do them more than twice a week. No, totally agreed. I'm curious. Um, you know, you said that, you know, looking at your data is, uh, you know, are you using anything like training peaks to actually kind of collect and understand your mileage or total gain per week? Are you tracking things at a more granular level or is it just kind of, Hey, I know that I, I got this much in this week and it's a, it's a rough budget on hours. Um, yeah, I, so I, uh, do Garmin and then I guess I'm on three different platforms. Adidas running, um, has an app and then it's called Runtastic, and then Garmin, and then, uh, final surge. And so my data is uploaded to those three platforms. And I typically just look at it on Garmin. Sometimes I'll use final surge. Um, yeah, I, I, I start four months out from any a race. Um, and then those four months I will start depending on like where my fitness is at week one. Um, I start whatever like mileage I can handle that week, but my goal is to get up to like consistent 70 mile weeks. And then when I'm comfortable with that, then I go into hundred mile weeks and typically I do two to 300 mile weeks and then a two week taper before my race with hard rock. I did 500 mile weeks and then a two week taper and then raced. Um, right now I'm going into Madeira 115 K and I'm in the middle of my second hundred mile week, second or third second, I think. Um, and I plan on continuing that for the next two more weeks. Well, yeah, I'm... I need to look at some dates, but <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I, I really think that hundred mile weeks like are big for me, but, um, also I'm starting to realize like I'm at sea level right now and hundred mile weeks don't really, I feel like I'm cutting corners. Like I'm the data shows I'm doing hundred miles, but I don't feel like I was doing, I don't feel as beat down as when I was doing hundred miles in the San Juan mountains. And so I'm like contemplating if I should, you know, jump up to like 120 mile weeks. But also I think there is like that aspect of going too far, then you're, you're draining the well for race day. Yeah, that's a, that, that is quite the quandary. Um, you know, you'll, you'll have to figure out how you quantify that. And I guess that's the beauty of training and right. We are an experiment of one. Um, and you know, we, whether, you know, you're coached or you're not coached, right. It's you, you're the only one that knows at the end of the day of, have I dug too far? And I think one thing I wanted to touch on before we, we dive in a little bit to Nolan's is you mentioned, you know, getting to that race, feeling good. Let's talk for just a second about recovery. Um, you know, is, it sounds like recovery is something that, you know, pretty well, it seems like, you know, when you've pushed hard and when to recover, you know, do you, do you ever find yourself having to take a rest week, you know, maybe an unplanned one, or is it more of just, I get up when I feel like I get up and I really kind of just let the natural flow of things. I kind of think about your move to Colorado. Is that a, a symbol for how you kind of, you know, view recovery and things like that? Like you just kind of let, let it play out or is it more structured? I would say it's more structured. I know like I will always do three weeks hard at minimum and then a rest week. And then if that rest week comes and I realize I don't really need it, 
I'll push through. I rarely like will jump up my rest week. If I think I need it, like I'll just push through. But if, if I'm at three weeks and you know, week four is supposed to be a rest week and I'm just, I feel strong and like I can push it one more week. I will then maybe, you know, reevaluate on the next week. So I do a lot of like in training, I guess, um, checks on see where I'm at, but I, I really adhere to like the traditional, like three weeks on one week rest, three weeks on one week rest until I get, um, within, I don't know, like whatever week range I think is acceptable for the upcoming race of, okay, now I'm going to jump into my hundred mile weeks and I'm going to do it this many weeks. And then I'm going to do my two week taper. And I always do a two week taper. Um, and then as far as recovery after race, however many miles I raced, um, every, for every 10 miles I raced, I make myself take one full day off. And so every hundred miler, I take at least 10 full days off afterwards, if not more, depending on how hard it was and where my body's at, at the end of those 10 days, and then jump back into training at whatever level I'm comfortable with. And sometimes it's like, you know, 20 mile weeks. And sometimes I'm right back at 50 to 70 mile weeks. Um, so yeah, it is, it's just a lot of individual, what's working for me right now and where should I go from here? When it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder, reach farther and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed recovery and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll unlock real time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personalized trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash defining endurance that's inside tracker.com forward slash defining endurance it sounds like you have a pretty strong internal dialogue and understanding of what your body needs any given day yeah i've never been coached by anybody i've never um like i did track in seventh grade but i've never had a running coach so um yeah. I've always, you know, from road marathons to, to where I am today, like I've never had a coach. And so, um, I mean, I've tried, uh, having Avery coach me and we realize it's not great for our relationship. So that ended pretty quick, but, um, yeah, I just coach myself. And so I, th- I think each year, every six months, really, I just get a better understanding of, of how hard I can be pushed and, and where I need those, those breaks. No, in, intuition is is definitely um, it's a hard thing, and I think with someone like yourself who has a a strong understanding, um, you know, coaching yourself is probably the easiest way because um, it could be hard to flex and change and and move into that. You you wouldn't be the first professional uh, endurance athlete I've talked to that doesn't have a coach, um, and I think that's that's much more common on the side of ultra runners than it is for 
um, road marathoners. And I think one of the big structures there that's missing in the ultra world, and I think you have a small version of that with Avery, is that we don't see these same large groups that you would see for track and road racing. Um, there's no ultra training group, at least not one that I've heard of, um, that, you know, everybody gets together to go out and, and do six or seven hours, um, because it becomes very individual. Um, and, and I think you, you've shared that quite well. Um, and I, and I think I'd like to parlay this individuality into kind of one of your, your projects, uh, in, in 2020, um, which was Nolan's 14. Um, do you, you know, do you want to, um, do you want to share at least a little bit about how it became a project for you and how, how it started as like, that's the thing that I'm going to, I'm going to go after. I want the fastest known time, the FKT for Nolan's 14. What, what was the spark? Yeah. Um, well, when COVID hit, we didn't really know what was going on. Um, I was maybe a quarter of the way into hard rock training, if not less when COVID like truly struck, but hard rock wasn't canceled until, um, sometime in June, early June. But so I was, by the time hard rock was canceled, I was pretty deep into training at that point for hard rock. And I wanted something that kind of married well with my training. I wanted, I would say hundred miles is where I shine the, the most. It's where I feel the most comfortable. Um, obviously mountains, I, I really enjoy running in them. Um, I live at 93,000, 90, sorry, 9,300 9, feet. Um, and so high elevation, um, is something that I'm also really comfortable with. And so I just started kind of like searching FKTs that, um, I could travel to with COVID that, you know, we're in, in that met all the criteria and Nolan's popped up as something that I had heard about a few years back and was, was kind of interested in and just never thought I'd have the opportunity to do it, um, while racing. And so this, although much earlier in life than I planned on doing it was like a nice, um, kind of break from racing and, you know, I could focus on doing Nolan's. And so Nolan's is 14, 14,000 foot peaks. Um, and yeah, you can pick your own trail you can go north to south or south to north. They aesthetically, it's a really nice line. Um, they're right in a row. And so, yeah, you start close to Salida, Colorado, and then you finish in Leadville and, and that's running it south to north, which is the direction I went. So yeah, there, you can pick your own route, which there's a dozen routes off any mountain and up any mountain. So it's really like mixing and matching those routes to which ones complement the other one, the best. Cause you don't want to blow up your quads too early. You don't want to take the most direct line every single mountain. Cause you know, you, you want to give your muscles a break, but like which ones are best to run up the long way or the short way and which ones have the best, best scree fields or the best snow that you can glissade down. Um, which vegetation should you avoid? Cause you're going to get stuck in willows or creeks or, you know, whatnot. And so, yeah, it's, it was a huge project, I think bigger than I even realized when I took it on. Um, but it was a lot of fun and it was, it was a lot, a lot of fun. No, I, I love that. I, uh, as I look at the map here, you know, I, I think back to your first hundred, right. And, 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 and in a sense you were called back home, you know, called, called back to Leadville, um, you know, and, and getting there for the first time was, was a huge accomplishment. And, you know, um, Megan set the record in 2016. 
you came back um, in August and you broke it by eight hours, which already was a, a huge, um, you know, margin of victory. Um, and then the following, not even a month later, uh, Megan came back to set the record uh, by about 45 minutes. And you then said, well, this is, I, I have to assume that this is, this is something that I, I want to go after again. And, you know, before we really kind of dive into that, you know, there's, there's not much time after recovery, you know, from that. And so I'm curious to understand that once, once you saw that the, the record was no longer yours um, and, and coming back for it, um, you know, was, did you change your training? Did you try to, um, you know, did you find that after the first time that you, you got the record, that there was areas that you could improve? How did you approach going for the record a second time? Because now it's October when you're taking this on and it's October right now when we're talking and when we were, you know, before this, this call started, like Silverton got 10 inches of snow uh, just a couple of days ago. And we're roughly two weeks removed from when you attempted this. So significantly colder, higher chance of snow, you know, you might have to be carrying more gear, um, and be conscious of that. Um, I'm really curious to kind of understand that after you did it the first time, what did you learn and how did you turn around so quickly? Yeah. So after the first time I took a month off, um, I, did not run at all. My, I mean, it was a really hard effort. I was out there for 51 out over 51 hours. My first attempt, um, I'd never ran past 31. And so to run for 51 hours straight, like it took it out of me. Um, and so I thought I was, I was off until the spring. And when I started training again, um, and Megan, um, got the record early September and I forget how, I think I had, man, I think I had like two and a half weeks, maybe three, um, where I, the, the day that she set the record, I went out for an eight hour run. I just wanted to see what, where my body was at and it felt good. And so maybe not springy, but it felt doable. And so I just kept running and said, I'm, I contacted, um, my team manager with Adidas and I said, this is what I'm thinking. And you know, what are your thoughts? And he honestly was not stoked on the idea. He's like, no, like you can't, your body can't do that. Like think long-term, you know, is this a priority? Um, and I was like, I can't go through the winter putting that much work into Nolan's and then not going back. And to me, it was like almost like a game of horse, you know, in basketball, like you, you have to prove it. And so I wanted to go prove that, you know, I put in the work for this record and I deserve to have it and whoever can do it fastest deserves it. And I wanted to, you know, prove to myself too, that like all that work wasn't in vain. And so, um, I went out for the eight hour run, everything went well. So I kept training, um, did I think two and a half or three and a half weeks of hundred miles and then did a week and a half taper, which, is shorter than I've ever done, but I really wanted to get that mileage in just to, I, maybe it was just more mental than physical, but, um, yeah, so I did my week and a half taper and went back out there. I changed my start time, um, so that I was hitting different mountains in daylight and night cause you're out there for two nights. So it does matter which mountains you're hitting in night, you know, like which ones are more technical. I changed my nutrition plan and, um, I think those were the two biggest things 
my pacing was very similar to my first round. Um, I just, I really fell apart on mountain 13, which is Elbert, which is the highest peak in Colorado. Uh, my, my first round. And I knew how bad I fell apart on that mountain my first time. And I said, you know, if I can just do the exact same run as I did the first time and not fall apart in that one section, like I can make up hours. And so even if I was having a low earlier in on my second attempt, I knew like, just don't like totally go off the rails on Elbert and you'll be fine. And so that was kind of in the back of my head the whole time. Yeah. I did have a lot more gear with me. Um, I mean, there's pictures of me. I ran, I think a decent amount of miles in a huge puffy, <laughs> like a huge puffy coat. My second attempt, um, coming off of Princeton in the dark, it was, there was snow and it was really slippery and maybe not entirely safe. Um, there were definitely different aspects of the second round that slowed it down, but there was, you know, the inexperience in the first round that I feel like slowed it down as well. And so, yeah, there's just a few, a few changes like that, that, that made the difference. I think I moved a lot slower just naturally because my legs weren't there. Um, I do think if I went back, there's like a perfect time frame that's, you know, end of June, early July, where the vegetation isn't out of control. The snow's melted enough. There's like, there's less daylight in October. So to do it with a full moon, you know, with more daylight in June or July would also help. Um, yeah, obviously like I'm already like, how can I make this better? Um, at some point I would like to, but as long as racing's happening, I'm not going back anytime soon. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I, I got that from, from kind of your, your comments here that this is, this is a, this is a project maybe on for the future, but, uh, with racing right now, this, that seems to be your, your main focus. Um, you know, I, I read a, an article, um, you know, from outside that you did is that, um, you know, this took a lot of drive. This took a lot of motivation, um, you know, and, and where to come back and to be tired and to have this, is this just something that became personal for you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, I don't think that you can train that much on the course and not just feel like attached to it in some way. Um, I mean, after, so we went, my partner and I, we went up there June 1st and we're there, you know, off and on, but the majority of the time, um, until my attempt in August or I'm sorry, until, yeah, I think it was my attempt in August. And then I thought it was done. So I went home for a month. Um, and then for, I went back and just like camped up there for weeks by myself. Um, cause Avery had other things going on. And so I know it's silly cause I like don't have kids or anything, but to be like in October or I'm sorry, late September in a tent, um, you know, like without your dog and without your partner and just like camping up there for weeks by yourself. I mean, although it's something I enjoy, like you are losing, you like there's, um, investments being made or sacrifices, whatever you want to call them that are taking away from other aspects of your life. And so I was so invested into this route that I feel like I had to go back and like, put my name next to the FKT. Like at the end of the day, that's, that was the goal from day one. Um, 
And I, even like before I attempted it my first time, I said, if anybody breaks my, cause I was very certain I would get it the first time. If anybody breaks my FKT, I'm going to go back. I don't care who they are. Like I will go back as many times as weather allows. Um, and I will, I will have this FKT at the end of, the, of 2020. Um, and so I'm really proud that I stuck to that and I never thought I'd have to go back and prove it, but, um, I did. And, and I'm happy with that effort. I'm really curious because I, I can, one could draw a lot of parallels about, you know, even though you were successful in your first attempt at this FKT, there's a, there's a pretty distinct parallel drawn that after Megan, you know, kind of popped back in there that it was kind of akin to that first time at Leadville, um, you know, and, and not that, you know, your FKT was by any means a failure, um, but to, to kind of bounce back, it kind of seems like one, you're always being called back to Leadville, but also two is that you, you understand what it means to, to make a comeback and to, you know, really get efficient and, and dial yourself in. Was there, you know, anything in the back of your mind, um, at, on that second attempt that was like, this, this could be a failure or was it, or was that never a thought that entered your mind? It wasn't. Um, I had people take time off work. Um, I had people drive in from Washington state. Um, I, there was too many like things in motion and sacrifices that other people were making to be there for me. Um, that, I said, I'm not starting this unless I know I'm going to be successful. Like, I'm not going to waste all your time. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get halfway through or a quarter through or even within 10 miles and not make this happen. Um, and so honestly, like by peak three of my second attempt, it felt like I had 80 miles on my legs. And I was like, what are you doing out here? Like, this isn't fun. And like, why, what is this for? You know? Um, but at the same time, I feel I reached a whole nother level of being an ultra runner at that point. Cause I was able to turn off my mind in a way I never have before and just keep pushing and just physically just move. And at a pace that like my body was telling me was not doable. Um, and so to be able to do that for two days straight like that, even right now, it's like, I don't know who that person was and it, seems so incredible to me that like mentally I like, that's why I loved running from the get-go was like, I went out for seven miles and I couldn't believe that somebody could run seven miles. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we're always trying to find that edge, but once you learn how to, you know, eat right and pace yourself and your training is right, like it's so hard to find that edge. And so you keep upping the ante and the ante was so high for Nolan's and then it worked out. And so, um, yeah, I don't know if I'm answering your question, no, but yeah, this, like, is, I, so this is beautiful. I love it because it, <laughs> <laughs> no, it is right. I, I think to even some of my athletes, you know, that have had uh, a DNF at a race, you know, I think the words you just shared there can, can probably sink in for some of them. And I, and I, I hope to see some comments on Facebook from them um, and other places that this gets posted um, because it's about who you have to become, you know, in these moments. Um, and like you said, you may not 
you don't even recognize maybe even who that person was that you even got outside yourself a little bit when it came down to, um, you know, race day and actually being in that moment, um, you probably reflect on it and can see it from a, from a bird's eye view, uh, in a sense. I'm even thinking of, there's a phenomenal YouTube video that follows, um, you know, you going and doing this. Um, so I encourage, I'll, I'll put that link in the show notes. Um, but it's, I'm, I'm curious before we kind of close things out here, like, um, you know, afterwards, once you got the record, um, what, what, what was the feeling? What was the initial emotion? Was it relief or, you know, was it, you know, where, what, what, what did it feel like? like just this deep inner peace. Like it wasn't a crazy celebration. It wasn't rowdy. It was just like, uh, like just this weight off your shoulders, you know, cause you, you have these expectations for yourself and you can hope and plan that they're going to work out. And I like, again, going back to Leadville where I dropped, like it, they don't always work out. And I, maybe I had too much riding on my first Leadville. Like I thought I was going to go in there and people are gonna be like, who's this Sabrina Stanley that we've never heard of. And like she, her first hundred mile, her hundred mile debut. And she just like sets this record and blah, 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 blah. And it didn't happen. And I told all my coworkers like to come out and support me and, you know, to not finish the race coming from, I think too, you know, a, a team sports background where if you're losing a basketball game, you can't just quit. Like, you have to finish the game. And so that's what I, I felt like the game was left unfinished um, when I did Leadville the first time. And so that, um, yeah, I, man, I'm sorry. I, I feel like I lost your, your question again, but no, it's um, good. This is great. You right. know, I, I think I'm going to name this episode unfinished business you know? <laughs> um, because yeah, you just you can't quit. You like, you're not in my mind, you're not allowed to like DNFing is not an option. And I know like that's not healthy sometimes, but yeah, like you, if you can't quit in a basketball game because the clock's running, then you can't quit in an ultra. Now, if you get timed out and you tried your hardest, that's a whole different story. But if you pull yourself out because you're not feeling well, or because like your nutrition is off, like things turn around in a hundred miles. And I think so many people stop early and every single time I reach 60 miles, that's when I feel warmed up. And I feel horrible from mile 40 to 50. And so if you drop at mile 45, because you're in the middle of this ugly patch, you're never going to know what it feels like to have the burners turn on at mile 60. And I, I do believe that everybody has that in them at some point, like things are going to hit the fan, but they will turn around. And so, um, yeah, I think I'm really just like, I don't know, going down random paths now, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's like you got to is... finish, you got to finish. And so that, that mile 87 drop, like was the best thing that could have ever happened for me. No, I love this because I think so often, um, you know, we, we hit these pieces of, of our lives, whether it's in business or it's work or it's training and we, we rub up against resistance, right? Um, you know, I, I've had, you know, resistance described to me as a tree. And as that tree grows, whether you've becoming, you've become more successful, right? Your success could be in the analogy, a tree, there's a shadow with every tree. And that shadow is, is resistance that as you grow, so in does resistance to growing um, in, in a sense. And so when we meet that resistance, when we come up against it, 
that discomfort is often momentary. It is not forever and it does, it will not last. And I think what, what I, what I've heard from you and kind of really kind of pulling this all together to me is that resistance is, is, is this very temporary thing that if we don't choose to meet it, if we don't choose to meet it head on, it, you know, we're, we're silly to think that it's, it's, it's going to be easy to enter any race, to enter any training event and think that it's going to feel easy or that it should feel easy. And then when we are met with that resistance, uh, that if we back down, right, it wins. Uh, but in a sense, that's, that, that's the failure is that we, we let some of that resistance win. And now we all know that there's plenty of reasons that a DNF can happen. Um, and there's things that we cannot control, but in a sense, this callousing, this understanding is, is a necessary part of training, especially for very long events that it's, it's very rarely your success in the event defined by your intervals your average pace per mile, it comes down to how do you deal with discomfort? How do you deal with that, that resistance? Um, but also knowing that if you felt this before, that you're probably on the edge of having that breakthrough and pushing beyond it. So I, I would say that I, there's, there is very little else to say here because I think we've, we've nailed it. I think we figured out training and racing for hundred milers, kidding, of course, <laughs> but this is this has been a phenomenal deep dive into. I, I've loved kind of taking a look inside. You know how you've approached these. I think anybody that listens to this episode got some amazing information. I do want to take a chance to kind of bring us to today. You're actually coming to us all the way from Portugal. Yeah, yeah, we're on a Madeira island, so right off of Portugal. It's um, owned by Portugal, and it's my first time here. But yeah, we're um, training and studying the course. Uh, for a race on November 20th on the Island that goes point to point. Um, and it's 115 K. So yeah, we're pretty stoked on that. I think you've fallen in love with horses. With horses. <laughs> yeah. I've watched your Instagram and, uh, oh, <laughs> oh, those are all in Austria. So oh. before we got to Madeira, we were, um, we were in Austria for an Adidas team camp and they're, like all their trails just go through like farmers fields. And so you're like running by cows all the time or horses or whatever sheep. And so like every trail run, there would be horses. And so I started bringing carrots with me. And of course, once I started bringing carrots then I didn't see any horses, but yeah, it was, I grew up around horses. And so, um, it was kind of cool to, to be back around them a little bit. <laughs> I have to say you found some, some great wild friends, uh, just taking a, a look yeah. through your Instagram. <laughs> I do want to, you know, give you a chance. You, you said that you've got that race, co- the 115 K coming up in Madeira. I do want to make sure that people have a chance to figure out, you know, how to find you hear a little bit about your sponsors and kind of who helps keep you going. Um, so would you, would you, care for just a moment here to kind of share who some of your sponsors are and where you can be found on the, on the gram. Yeah. So I'd say I have three main sponsors. Um, number one being Adidas Terex. Um, and I cannot speak highly enough about their whole organization. I think the trail running community that they're trying to build right now, like they are trying to build, I think what we see in the track world, um, just like this huge team environment where we all support each other, which is pretty awesome to meet all these athletes from across the world. They were doing all these different distances and trail. Um, and so yeah, Adidas Terex. And then my other sponsor is mirror energy and that's my nutrition company, um, that I run for. And 
it's all um, organic and gluten-free and vegan. And um, they're very like earth conscious. And um, I highly suggest giving them a try. They have, it's a lot of like fruit and nut um, purees that are really good. And then my third sponsor is Lake Apoles, um, which is, um, with doing a lot of mountain ra- racing, of course, I go through a lot of poles. And so it's really nice having them on board. Um, but yeah, those are my top three sponsors. Um, and I cannot thank all of them enough for, for helping me get to where I am today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I personally, uh, have used, uh, the, the poles that you're discussing. And the thing I really love about them is that you can get out of them really easy. Uh, I know that seems like a silly thing, but, you know, for me, that's a, such a nice thing that if I got to grab, grab some food or I'm going to, you know, take a downhill, um, I really like being able to, to get my hands out and have them free. Um, so definitely a big fan of those. I actually use them, uh, pacing a friend, uh, at the both Tahoe and Bigfoot 200. Um, and I think they're a sponsor for both of those events. Um, so definitely can, can speak to both of those, um, to that sponsor, I would say, um, as far as kind of keeping up with you, uh, where can you be found? Where do you kind of find yourself sharing, uh, your journey? I would say, I'll keep it simple. And I'd say, um, the number one place to go is Instagram and, uh, Sabrina Leanne Stanley is, uh, my Instagram handle. And that's where I, I mean, you can follow other things, but it's just all replicates of, of Instagram. <laughs> so I'd say that's the number one spot. Perfect. I will link that in uh, the show notes. Um, but with that said, I think we uh, will wrap up the show for today. Uh, Sabrina, I really enjoyed this conversation, kind of diving deep into the the mindset of both Nolan's, but also uh, your whole journey as an athlete. So thank you so much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. I, I had a good time talking with you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hey guys, Coach Andrew Simmons here. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Defining Endurance, the podcast from Lifelong Endurance. Do you want more information and content between shows? Follow us on Instagram at lifelong underscore endurance, as well as on Facebook. You can also check out our YouTube page for more running and strength training tips. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. We look forward to seeing you guys next week.